Welcome to another edition of Joe's Media Corner. This week we're talking newspaper credibility, ethics, getting the story right, admitting mistakes, unearthing misleading stories. And that's exactly what the Houston Chronicle did with its veteran reporter, Mike Ward. He had been a statehouse reporter for many years, first at the Austin American Statesman and then at the Chronicle. And the paper got some tips this last summer that there were problems possibly with sourcing, with people who were quoted in stories who didn't exist. They first hired a private investigator who looked into some stories and found some problems. And then they hired a freelance journalist, David Wood, who is a Pulitzer Prize winner with a great reputation. He did even more investigating and came out with a lengthy report that the paper posted just last week, along with an editor's note from outgoing editor Nancy Barnes that explained what occurred. And this looks like a really good example of how newspapers can handle credibility issues, can handle problems in their reporting just by being open and honest. So we're going to talk to Stephen Riley, who is the current interim editor. He spoke with us about this issue, explained a lot of what went on behind the scenes and why it was really a good inside look at the paper's process and the idea that readers will and viewers, in the case of television or listeners in radio news, they will be forgiving and understanding if there's occasional mistakes. And the key is, of course, being open about it. So we talked to uh, Mr. Riley, and we'll uh, play that interview right now. And then, of course, we talked to another expert on ethics, Lynn Walsh. She's the ethics chair at the Society for Professional Journalists, and she's also running a new project out of the Reynolds Institute at the University of Missouri called Trusting News, which is looking for ways that newspapers and news outlets uh, of all kinds can help their credibility, can tell readers and listeners and viewers more insight into what's being done with the news and do more to gain trust, and we'll get her take on the whole Houston Chronicle situation in a moment. But first, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor, Jiminy's Dog Treats. Yeah, Jiminy's makes a delicious dog treat that uses cricket protein. Yes, that's cricket protein, which is better than beef or chicken because it's sustainable, and Jiminy's uses less water and land than beef or chicken. That's Jiminy's at Jiminy's.com, J-I-M-I-N-Y-S.com. And now let's go to our interview with Stephen Riley. So, Stephen, are you there? I'm here. Good to talk to you. Of course, you're Stephen Riley, interim executive editor at the Houston Chronicle. And we're Correct. talking to you not on a great issue, but perhaps a positive approach to the issue. One of your reporters, Mike Ward, has been found to have been misrepresenting stories and, and sources over several reporting assignments. I think the paper has been pretty open about revealing what occurred. There was a good long story, November 8th, by David Wood, who was brought in to review the issues. And the initial report was there were eight stories that were retracted, but also concerns about many others. And this involves Ward, who was apparently a longtime reporter at the Chronicle and also previously at the Austin American Statesman, which I understand is doing its own review. Why don't you give us the background, of course, on when this emerged and how the paper handled it? Sure. I, I want to be clear on one thing. I Please. mean, we we can't prove that all none of these sources exist. Correct. It's just impossible. We, what we can say is that we conducted an exhaustive search to try to find these sources and were unable to do so on in um, 122 of the, of the cases. So just to back up, in the summer, midsummer to late summer, we received information that led us to believe we could have some problems with some of Mike's sourcing mm-hmm. in, in with his everyday sources, not his political experts and, and uh, politicians, but in the everyday Texans that, you know, we use all the time to, to bring life to stories. And Nancy Barnes, who was 
then the paper's executive editor and who is now moved on to become the head of National Public Radio. Right, and she just recently left, and, but you've been yes. at the paper for many years. How long have you been at the paper? Well, no, I've been at the paper no. for about about a year. Yes, oh, uh, one year, okay. I, I came as deputy managing editor for investigations a year ago from the News and Observer in Raleigh, where I was for 31 years. Excellent. Also, Mr. Ward, how long was he at the paper? Because he's not a young new reporter Mike, like occurs in some of these cases. He's Mike had been at the Chronicle for four years, right. and prior to that had been at the Austin American Statesman for quite a long time. Right. So he's a pretty veteran um, reporter. Yes, no question. Uh, so anyway, we had reason to believe, and when Nancy heard this, she immediately had a researcher on our staff go through several of Mike's more recent stories, and we could not find a lot of the everyday people who were quoted in those stories. Now, when you're talking about when it was discovered, this was you got first concern last summer? Uh, this was in, I want to say it was in July, but I'm, I'm not absolutely certain. Can you be any more specific? I'm, was it a reader who called in or people who had doubts related to certain... I really would rather not rather say, not say about understandable. That. That's fine. When you were talking um, about everyday people, that's sometimes witnesses, man on the street kind of interviews, yeah, people, right? Which right. I know is an interesting issue in itself because a lot of stories will quote man on the street, woman on the street, witnesses, regular people, as you say. And I don't think a lot of reporters. I know when I my reporting. You don't necessarily seek ID or ask for their name or ask for any kind of proof of who they are because that can get yeah. very uh, rude and embarrassing. And in general, it's also a, the kind of a quote or the kind of a of a interview you can fake pretty easily if you want to. You make somebody up, give them well, a name. I, I suppose you could. In terms of um, just you know, you're not citing them as a as a spokesperson or as a known individual. It's just a person on the street or a witness or someone who the most readers wouldn't know who they are. So I could see the temptation, but obviously it's uh, the, one of the main rules and ethics of journalism not to fake any of that. So anyway, I just wanted to point out that's an interesting yeah. element of this. But so this came this so, arose last summer. Yeah, it arose this summer, and we I would I would say to to your point that we certainly would hope that if a reporter is interviewing someone that he or she would get the phone number and contact information in case they need to call back and ask for further clarification on something. Absolutely. We, we, would, we would expect that they would do at least that, and we would expect that they would keep that contact information in case, in case questions arose. Be that as it may, we found some initial trouble with the 10 stories or so that we tried to review. We wanted to make sure there was not a, some flaw in our methods for trying to find these folks through LexisNexis and through various databases. And we hired a private investigator briefly to look at those same few stories and that person had the same problems that we were having. At that point, our decision, Nancy's decision, was to employ David Wood, a longtime veteran, experienced, well thought of, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who has worked all over the world in war zones and now lives in San Antonio to come in and, and, and do this for us. We started by looking at two years, and when he found problems there, we decided to go for the whole boat and look at all 744 stories that Mike had written while he was at the Chronicle. And what, what we found was what we reported last week, that there were a number of sources, more than 100, that we could not verify, and that there were eight stories that rose and fell on those sources and that we were going to retract and take them off our website. And then there are another 64 or five that have sources in them that we couldn't verify, but that are not 
pivotal to the story's existence and thesis. We are going to be in the process of correcting all those stories online, and that's a little more laborious process, and we didn't want to wait until we had all that done before we published the results of our findings. So that's why we went ahead last week and put the story out so our readers would know. And let me just hasten to add that there was never any thought that we were not going to share this information with our readers, whatever it turned out to be. That was our intention from the beginning, and that's what we did. We felt like the people who pay us for our journalism deserve to know when we fall short. Sometimes that's easy enough just in a mere correction on page A2 or A3. In this case, certainly that was not enough, and we went further. And what was Ward's beat in the last year in general? He was in our Austin bureau. He was you know, one of the best-known political reporters in Texas. So he reported on state government, state politics, had a pretty far-widing, pretty far-wide reach in the, you know, in the capital complex and in the politics that extend from it. He, he had been recruited to come to our paper four years ago from Austin, from the Austin American Statesman. So he had a prominent position. And is it thought that the stories that the eight that were retracted, were they more recent stories or... Did they go back to four years when he started? What's sort of the timeline on them? Actually, they were all, except one of them was, was from this year. And then there was one from last November. The the others that we found problems with, but that who didn't have their foundation kicked out from under them, went all the way back uh, to the first year that he was here. So this could be something that maybe stretched his entire time, but it sounds like the ones that were really difficult to substantiate to be enough to be removed were more recent. That's correct. Now, when was he approached, and and how how did he react? It was it was some it was sometime in in August, I suppose, when Nancy first discussed this with him, and he spent some time trying to find the sources. Could not do so, and the ones that we challenged him on early. He and Nancy had another, we've reported all of this, but he and Nancy had another discussion and he offered to resign and Nancy accepted. I do not want to speculate on the whys and the wherefores. Mm -hmm. Again, what we're trying to do is stick to the facts that there are sources in the stories that we cannot confirm and we want to come clean on that. Did he admit to to making anything no. up or any other? No. He just, just uh, offered to resign. Yes. He, he did not admit to anything. He offered to resign and that's where it stopped. And is there any thought as to whether this was just poor reporting and using sources that were difficult to confirm or that there was something more nefarious or you'd rather not speculate? I really just don't have any way to know and yeah. I don't want to speculate. I don't think that's fair to, to Mike and I, and I don't see any, any good coming from it. Again, we've just tried to share what we know and what we can show and, and what we thought the readers should know. And this is a, also a good example of why reporters should, as you say, find some contact information, even for regular people on the street or witnesses or regular people in stories to say, not only to confirm who they are, but like you said, if there's any questions, I know whenever you're doing regular interviews, generally you get a business card or name and number, but yeah, perhaps a lot of reporters, I know when I was working at newspapers, I didn't necessarily get phone numbers uh, and, and contact information for regular folks that I interviewed on what seemed to be a basic story and their part in it wasn't that big, but this sounds like a good reminder. Is that something reporters are generally told? You know, Joe, we have, I've been thinking about this a lot and, you know, I've con, I conduct really massive fat, fact checks on our investigative stories that can last more than a day. Sure. Uh, asking reporters to show me everything they're relying on for every assertion in a story. And in the day-to-day -day journalism, we expect reporters to be fact-checking themselves. Correct. That if they've gone back and looked at everything they've put in their story, they've gone back to make sure they're not relying on memory, 
that they can back up what they're saying. Having said all of that, I don't know that I've ever gone to a reporter and said, okay, give me the phone numbers of these three average Joes on the street because I'm going to call them and make sure they exist. That's just, you know, if it's, it's a reporter that we trust, that's just not part of the, the routine. And, you know, going forward, we've got to think about what we do and how we do it. And we certainly will be encouraging reporters to get and keep contact information on the people that they're going to use in their stories. I would hasten to add that as the story reported, we did some spot checks, not so much because we were checking behind any particular reporter, but again, we wanted to make sure that there wasn't some flaw in our process here. Uh, and we found it quite easy to find the everyday sources in other reporters' stories. So that was heartening to us from the perspective of those reporters, but also just a, a good contrast for what was happening in the stories that we were checking. Right. And in this kind of a story, you do have to, and in every story, you have to rely on the reporter's honesty. If a reporter wants to make things up or lie about a source or a story, you're at their mercy in many ways. But that's also the major part of a reporter is to be honest and trustworthy. And if you can't trust what they're going to do, there's nothing more we you can do. We don't want them around. Right. And in, in many cases, especially in a case like this, where there seem to be so many examples of sources quoted who just could not be tracked down, especially nowadays when you have so many more ways to find people online and wherever. And you said you also hired a private investigator early on? We did. And that's someone who specializes in tracking people down. And if that person couldn't track them down, you, it would make sense to believe they don't exist. Especially someone who would be more willing to talk to a reporter, probably wouldn't be as secretive as someone who wouldn't, would you think be easier yeah. to find? So it would seem to indicate that after such a pattern finding wrongdoing or thinking maybe Ward played a part in trying to uh, falsely represent things would make sense. And uh, for his departure, obviously, it sounds like he also made it easier in terms of agreeing to leave rather than fighting it. And th this also raises, you know, people's memories of Jason Blair, who was the New York Times reporter who did a lengthy uh, list of false reporting. And then even back to Janet Cook, the Washington Post reporter who made up a story about a young heroin addict that won a Pulitzer Prize and she was found to have lied. I mean, there's several others, uh, I think from USA Today and the Boston Globe had some examples that are maybe had less uh, egregious uh, lists of falsities. But in this case, it seems like once the paper found out that there was even a question, you really went into high gear. What was sort of the reaction in the newsroom when it started up? Was it, it sounds like it was basically we have to track this down and reveal everything. Well, that's true. But that, that information was kept fairly close to the vest for a while. I mean, the, most of the folks in the newsroom didn't know what the path was and what the problem was on the story. We tried to keep it quiet until we knew what the story was. But at that point, we wanted to be transparent. You know, I want to emphasize that we try to be as transparent as we can be every day about the sourcing for our stories. Mm -hmm. You will find very few stories in the, in the Chronicle that rely on anonymous sources. And when they do, they have to be approved at the highest level and the editors have to know who those sources are. And there has to be a really good reason. We're not playing ball in Washington, and it's not a, an environment that runs on anonymous sourcing, and we just don't do it much. And the reason is we want our readers to know where the information is coming from that is backing up our stories. It, that goes double for our investigative stories. It's, it's just really rare. And in this case, we wanted to let people know 
what happened. And what is the general policy for the paper in terms of checking these kinds of sources? Or is it basically you have to trust reporters, to be honest? And again, these were not anonymous sources, which I know is a whole other issue. Um, these are people on the record, supposedly. Yeah. Uh, is there really? It seems like you get to a point where you just have to trust the reporter to not There's a real able, trust yeah. that builds up between and among editors and reporters. Uh, if we get a whiff that we have a problem, then we, we bore in more tightly. But generally speaking, and, and as I said, when our other spot checks seem to indicate that most folks are playing by the rules here and that we have a high degree of confidence in the veracity of what we publish every day, and we want, to, we want our readers to have that same high confidence. And I, and I think, you know, in a perverse sort of way, an incident like this can help us reinforce that with our readers. Uh, and it also reminds everybody in the newsroom just how easily that trust can, can fall apart. You know, the reaction that we've gotten has been largely positive to what we've done. I'm heartened by that. I'm chastened by the, the circumstances. And we want to make sure we do everything we can that it doesn't happen again. Is there any policy change or anything the paper's doing to guard against this? Again, it sounds like there's very little that can be done other than knowing that you have trustworthy reporters. But even then, you don't know until something happens. Well, we'll have further discussions internally here about what we do going forward. I, I haven't issued any edicts, and I don't think that's wise on the first couple of days of somebody being the editor of the paper anyway. People don't know whether they'd listen to me or not. But uh, we'll, we'll have, we'll certainly, this certainly will spark discussions among the staff going forward, and we'll have some, and we'll, you know, we'll have some good talks about it. And perhaps just as you said, the issue of this occurring would probably remind reporters that if you're even thinking of doing something misleading don't because you're going to get caught it's going to hurt the paper it's going to hurt yourself so even just the way this was handled and someone was found to have been either lax in their duties or outright uh, dishonest other reporters obviously are going to get the message as well to make sure you're accurate and on top of these things in a positive way obviously after a negative issue fallout can be positive in that regard how's it been for you obviously you've been at the paper about a year and then you just become interim editor in the last week Uh, this is sort of a way to be thrown into the uh, deep end of the pool well again i give i give nancy barnes credit that she wanted to sew this up before she left and take responsibility and 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 with communicating with our readers about it so it all didn't fall to me i just got to do some interviews over the weekend uh, after it after the story came out so it's an unusual start to a job and uh, I'll deal with it and I'll try to keep my eye on the the bigger picture which is to have the chronicle produce the kind of really high-end high-impact journalism that it's been doing the last few years and is there any thought that uh, any anyone is to blame beyond Mr. Ward? I know some of these other stories, especially the Jason Blair issue, Howell Raines, their editor, ended up losing his job along with the managing editor because it was found there were red flags that had come up many times that were ignored. And even in the Janet Cook case, there were a few red flags that came up early on. It doesn't sound like that occurred here. We've, um, we've seen nothing that indicates yeah. that anybody had an early look at this, and we haven't seen fit that anybody should really take the blame other than the what's already happened. And uh, Mr. Ward is also a very veteran reporter. Yes. Like some of these others that were newer and younger reporters, he, he'd been around a while and built up trust and an image where people may not necessarily assume anything wrong with him. He had. And then, so had. what's again, what's been the reaction generally in, in Houston and uh, with your competitors? Have they been pretty uh, kind or have they used to take shots at the paper? Uh, I haven't seen many shots. My personal circumstances and what I've seen has been generally positive. So we want to we keep it that way going forward. 
Okay, thank you very much. Uh, and again, we've been talking to uh, Stephen Riley, the new interim editor of the Houston Chronicle, about the Mike Ward case. It sounds like the paper's been doing everything that he can, revealing uh, the mistakes in a very open way, and we'll uh, move along, and the news will keep getting covered. The paper will move on and, and carry on, and you'll have an interesting start to your term as uh, interim editor and perhaps uh, permanent editor. I'll leave that part up to the publisher, but thank you, Joe. Thank you, sir. Be well. All right. Bye-bye. And thank you, Stephen, for that great insight. Now we're going to go to Lynn Walsh. She, of course, is the ethics chair at the Society of Professional Journalists and also running a great program at the University of Missouri's Reynolds Institute called Trusting News. That's at trustingnews.org. It's a program that's helping newsrooms regain trust with readers, viewers, listeners, find new ways to explain the process of news gathering and deal with similar issues to the ones that the Houston Chronicle is dealing with. And now let's go to that interview with Lynn. And hello, Lynn. Hello. And you are Lynn Walsh, the ethics chair at the Society of Professional Journalists but you also wear other hats. What are your other uh, ongoing positions? Yeah, so I'm working with a project called the Trusting News Project that's based at the Reynolds Journalism Institute at the University of Missouri, where I'm working directly with Joy Mayer, um, who is my colleague, and started this project to rebuild trust between the public and journalists. Primarily how we're doing that is by encouraging more transparency in journalism and also to talk about what journalism is and then also focus on engagement. And then on top of that, I am an adjunct professor here in San Diego, California, at a local university, and then do some freelancing when I can. And this uh, project through the University of Missouri, that's the School of Journalism? Yes. Uh, so it's based at, it's actually technically based at the Reynolds Journalism Institute, which is then based at uh, the University of Missouri. And how long has that project been going on? Um, a little over two years, or just about two years. I've been with them just about a year and like a month, I believe. And when you talk about improving credibility and, and trustworthiness, what kinds of things has the project been doing in that vein? So we have seven strategies that we believe that if newsrooms kind of implement these strategies, that they can increase trust between themselves and their community. How we've done that is we've just recently finished working with about just over 50 newsrooms. These are TV stations, local TV stations, local newspapers, regional newspapers, um, online-only organizations, and basically have them try to implement these strategies in any way that they saw fit. So how did people do this? One of our strategies is talking about, you know, demonstrating balance and how you do include other voices in your work. So sometimes they would put a box into an article that would link back to all the other voices that have been heard on a specific topic, or they would link inside the article that, you know, hey, we're, this article is about this side, but if you want to hear the other side, please click here. There's that kind of thing with Demonstrate Balance. A lot of the other stuff is really just being more transparent in our reporting. So talking about how we do our jobs every day, how we make decisions when it comes to ethics, why we decide to show certain video, why we decide to cover certain stories, those kind of things. And so we are talking to you about the Houston Chronicle situation where Mike Ward had been found uh, to have done some questionable reporting with sources that were not easily verified and the paper approached him he resigned the paper did a very lengthy internal review with outside reporter David Wood, a longtime Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist himself, and that was prominently played in the paper several days ago. And then, of course, uh, outgoing editor Nancy Barnes, who herself is a very respected editor in the business, she wrote a lengthy note to readers about it. And it seems like they did very much what you would want in terms of explaining things. There didn't seem to be any past problems with uh, Ward that maybe had red flags gone up that they should have seen. That didn't seem to be the case. And when this first came up, they investigated. They also hired a private investigator early on to try to nail down some of the questionable sourcing, and he couldn't 
verify them. And you kind of assume if a private investigator can't find someone, it means that they're, they should be easier to find if they're being quoted in a story. But what is your reaction right. to this kind of a response to questions the reporter raises and the way they really explained it to the public? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like based off of what, you, what you've said, that the Houston Chronicle really did a, a thorough job of trying to investigate the issue, which I think is just the number one first step, right, to make sure you're getting all the facts. What is the case, right? Is this a bigger issue, kind of systemic? Is there something within our system that broke down or is it this one individual with these one sources? So I I am impressed with that. It does sound very thorough. I think the best thing then to do from that point is, you know, if you've done this investigation as an organization is making sure you just can be as transparent as possible, you know, with your users. So, you know, every story that was related to this or had those sources that were questionable, hopefully there are links back to this editor's note um, to the investigation. There's some kind of note at the top of it. Maybe even if it's something that changes the facts, you might have to take stories down. It doesn't sound like that's the case in in, in these situations, but anything where you can really just be as transparent as possible. So that linking, you know, how are they sharing this on social media? That would be something I haven't taken a look yet, but, you know, are they answering questions as they come in? Maybe it's holding a live a Facebook Live or some kind of live video where you can just very just openly address any questions that come in um, and have a conversation. And what that's going to do is it's going to just reassure your community that, hey, you know, we are human. This mistake happened. We are very disappointed by it. We are going to try hard to not let it happen again. We investigated it and found this is why it happened. And now we're here to discuss it with you. And I think what that does is it just creates that trust that, you know, we're, we're human. We're willing to admit that a mistake happened. And we're willing to also say that we need to get better. And we also would welcome any feedback on how we can get better. And as we discussed with the editor in our previous interview, there were eight stories retracted and removed because they were okay. found to be the sources that were not verifiable were such a key part of the story they felt they shouldn't be run and they did retract them so that's another piece of it but the interesting thing also is that the sources involved were as the as the editor put it everyday people man on the street or witnesses or getting reaction from you know residents to such and such an issue are those the, are, is it a situation where reporters generally don't ask for phone numbers or verification of kind of a man on the street kind of person that would seem to be a little awkward or is it is that something you would recommend that you verify every source that way even just a regular person you're quoting um, or is it more this could be something where you know someone's identity was made up well I, I think anytime a best practice is anytime if you are the reporter or that producer and you're getting information that you are going to then publish in your story, especially if it's something that might be super one-sided or against mm-hmm. a certain individual or a company or anything like that, um, I think it absolutely is important to get follow-up information like a phone number, an email address, do a search for who they are. Um, for all you know, they could be a former employee, right, that you just happen to right stumble across. Um, I mean, there are all these things. So while I understand, yes, that that does take time, I do think still that should be a best practice just for really anyone you're going to um, use in a story. Now, if the story is something, you know, Black Friday is coming up and you're someone, a mother tells you how excited she is that she got this toy for her son, maybe then is not where you need to get, you know, a phone number. That's not something that maybe is, is she's not saying anything 
um, you know, raising allegations against anyone, right? That, that might be something that's sort of kind of basic, um, but it sounds like in this case is where it is something that is more serious or, you know, just a key part of the story. I, I definitely would recommend doing that. And are there things you found in your work with the project? Are there things mm-hmm. you found that, that are more prevalent than others in terms of mistrust that readers trust less when such and such happens and examples of when they do find the openness and the admitting a problem? I know there's been surveys done over the years that corrections and exposés and explaining how something went wrong generally improves credibility. And there was a time mm-hmm. when a lot of editors didn't want to admit mistakes because they thought it made you seem less credible. And what are you sort of finding in your research? Yeah, right. You just want to like take the story down, right? And there's no comment, no, no, no link or no explanation. And I think that's the the wrong approach nowadays, especially because we have so many ways that you can explain, link back, all of that. You know, there are several things that kind of continuously pop up for some of our news partners. So again, these newsrooms are local TV stations, local newspapers, local online organizations. Something that is maybe surprising, but something that did continuously come up is how local news organizations use content from the Associated Press, from wires like CNN. Lots of questions about, from a viewer standpoint, they're very unsure of who that person is when they see that, when they see just the name Associated Press, or if they see someone's name that they know isn't based here. They're they're confused if that person is based here. They're confused how the newspaper or news organization uses that information. And that confusion does create a sense of distrust at, at times because they are unsure, you know, well, why aren't you sending, you know, this reporter who I see all the time? Why am I hearing from, you know, this other person that I only see once a month? So explaining that kind of, you know, how you use that content, what that content is, and then especially if you're going to edit it at all, right? Um, If you do edit it, because that's something else that in some of the, especially the political reporting, there are complaints about a lot of bias with some of that national content. And the news organization sometimes doesn't know how to respond because they didn't report on it, right? They just took an Associated Press article and put it on their website. But explaining what that is and considering, uh, consider if you should edit it because it doesn't feel consistent with how the rest of your news looks online, what the tone is, all of that. And at a time when newspapers and newsrooms have more cutbacks and fewer people on staff, they're turning to the wire copy more often, I would think. So yeah, this is something I would think they're dealing with more often. And I know AP has certain policies about how much their stories can be changed. So it kind of works both ways. I know there have been AP reporters and editors who say, hey, TV station X or newspaper Y altered or left out certain things to the point where it really changes the tone and that hurts us. But the local paper or or news station wants to localize it or maybe, like you said, change the tone to meet the rest of the paper. And you're right, the audience is saying, well, what is this and who is this? person and maybe explain. A lot of people don't even know what AP is, that it is a consortium of news outlets and it's a national nonprofit or not-for-profit group. And are there reporters on scene or not? Or that, A lot of right, questions that exactly. are coming up because we're dealing with such resource cutbacks and more use of wire. So that's, that's one thing that we hear a lot. Um, another thing that people do like viewers or users will talk about is just ownership. So that kind of builds off of that. But, you know, if they are watching an NBC station, they may just assume, right, the assumption is made that it's an NBC station. But in most cases, most of the time, unless you're watching one of the 12 or 13 stations that are owned by NBC locally, it's not owned by NBC. And they have no control over what's happening on the Today Show or on the Nightly News. So explaining that, you know, the ownership actually is this other company and these are our ethics, these are our values, that goes a long way. 
way. And again, what, what we're finding in general is that a lot of times this distrust seems to be based on these assumptions that the public has made about how we do our jobs, what journalism is, what our ethics are, and they make assumptions that tend to be negative, and they make assumptions because we haven't explained how we do it. So things like story selection, this comes up a lot with crime coverage. If you continuously cover a crime in a certain neighborhood, there's the assumption that can be made that you just, you never come into this neighborhood unless someone's killed. And so they want to know, why didn't you cover this crime? Or why did you follow up and cover this crime till the end, but you didn't with this one? So that kind of coverage does leave people sometimes without an explanation if you're not explaining how you're covering crime with just a bad taste because they may feel like you're being biased towards them individually if they were charged or to their family or to their communities. And how much are you finding with this latest you know, anti-press fervor, uh, not only from the president, but from a lot of people on the right, the fake news mm-hmm. claims? Are your, the people you're working with now, the different outlets, different newsrooms, are they seeing more of a backlash and credibility questioning of them because of that versus any actual problem? Yeah, I do think that absolutely is contributing to the issue of distrust. I, I don't think you can, you know, say that it's not. And just, you know, flat out, there are many of our newsrooms who do have to deal with either certain individuals or, you know, multiple individuals that will just say fake news or say that you're biased. And right. something that we recommend to journalists when this happens is if someone does just say something that's very vague like that is to ask and, and to, to one, engage with them. Um, at least that, that that first time, don't like ignore them and say, you know, Thank you so much for for commenting. We'd really like to know why you believe that this is fake news or what you believe. What do you believe in this story that is biased? What we're finding is sometimes they just don't respond. Sometimes they will respond and give you an answer that you can actually work with. Maybe they are able to give you feedback that you can build a better story on because it's something you didn't realize because our newsrooms aren't as diverse as they should be. You didn't realize there was this other person to talk to. It's sometimes though it's going to be someone who's going to just keep yelling and then sometimes you do just have to kind of let them keep yelling and you can't engage with them anymore. But we're finding when you do engage and the best way to engage is one-on-one. That's what we are finding, which does take time that we are seeing people go from like completely yelling at a journalist, you know, in an email or on a Facebook comment to after there's a phone call or an email exchange or a comment exchange, thanking them after, you know, one or two comments back and forth and totally flipping um, their opinion. The other thing we're finding is such a reduction in ombudsmen and public editors. Uh, the New York Times got rid of their public editor not too long ago. Several others did. The Washington Post had a longtime ombudsman. Um, now, it looks like the Chronicle, in their reaction to the Ward story, did pretty much what an ombudsman would do, although mm-hmm. they don't have one on staff. There are fewer of them around. Uh, I think NPR and PBS mm-hmm. still have them. ESPN mm-hmm. got rid of theirs not too long ago. Is that something you're finding could be used more often? Or are the news outlets that you're dealing with able to sort of respond as they should? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say our the news organizations we've been working with have done a a pretty decent job of responding without having the ombudsman now done that and been able to do that because they've really made it a priority. Um, mm-hmm. And that said, it does take time, right? It's taking time out of an editor's day. And a lot of times the person doing this is someone that is an editor, either on the digital side or, you know, in management of some sort. So at a TV station, maybe a news director, an assistant news director. So we are finding that they are able to do it. But I think the one great thing about an ombudsman is that you really, as a user, kind of know who to contact, right? You know, sort of maybe a little bit more about what the process is, because normally agencies or organizations that have this explain that. 
they make it easy to contact that person. So I think if you're not going to have that ombudsman, still, I think you act in a way as if you did, but I think you also have to make it clear, here's how to contact us if we make a mistake. Here's who this goes to. Here's what the process looks like. You know, should they expect a response? Are you going to respond to everyone? If so, what does that look like? I mean, that goes just a really long way to building that trust and keeping trust with the public. Excellent. Well, I appreciate your time. We've been talking to Lynn Walsh, Ethics Chair at the Society of Professional Journalists and also at the Trusting News Project, and that's out of the Reynolds School at the University of Missouri. Where can people see the work uh, by that group? Yeah, um, trustingnews.org, and then we also have a medium publication that you can go to as well. Excellent, and of course, you're also doing freelance writing and teaching yourself in California, and I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And that's it for this edition of Joe's Media Corner. Hope we brought some insight into the better understanding of what newsrooms go through and how to best handle these credibility issues when mistakes are made. And don't forget to support our sponsor, that's Jiminy's Dog Treats, Cricket Protein that's hypoallergenic, humane, nutritious, delicious, and fights climate change. Reduce your carbon paw print with Jiminy's at Jiminy's.com, J-I-M-I-N-Y-S.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.